The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I am in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, where are we going to begin our chat today? I think we've got to start with UK health and social care and the government's um, uh, proposal to Mm. increase um, taxation or national insurance or or, or, or what will ultimately become um, uh, a separate social Mm. In our levy on our um, on our payslips, and um, I, I think you know they're trying to raise large sums of money. Obviously, in the short term of the next two or three years, there's a huge backlog that's mounted up in the NHS. Latest data shows that there's more than five and a half million people um, on waiting lists, and that number is going up rapidly, um, mm-hmm. quickly, um, and looks con- to continue to rise. Um, the government want this new taxation to 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 raise another thirty six billion pounds uh, over the next three years, and then their their, their idea is that that, that that as the backlog um, that the NHS has suffered as a result of the pandemic, as that's dealt with, um, that uh, and and therefore as money is freed up and becomes available, so it can lead to a reinvestment um, in social care, um, and the ultimate. Uh, policy idea is that uh, no one, uh, no individual, uh, will have to pay uh, more than eighty-six thousand pounds for their mm-hmm. care, um, um, and that uh, this will not only give people a greater degree of certainty about their long-term care needs, uh, mainly as they get older, but that this will spark, and I think this is a, the key thing. This will spark. Um, uh, um, uh, 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 through through have a greater sort of regulatory certainty that this will be a signal that will enable the private sector, the, the financial services industry, uh, to start supplying insurance products that people need to guarantee themselves against the costs of care. So it, 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 this is not just about growing attempting to get more tax in and more government interventionism i think ultimately it's also about providing a framework with 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 within which the financial services sector can respond to give people insurance products well, that seems if, if it's there it's all to be just an afterthought i was rather disappointed that they didn't actually look at this insurance based idea to begin with i mean it's the system that's used in so many other countries around the world why do you think they didn't go go for that i mean it would be if it worked would be evidence there is a way of using insurance and indeed you know private companies to help assist and take pressure off the nhs and the local authority system there was in fact um a a, a big discussion about uh long-term care insurance uh, ltci as it Mm. was called um uh in the early uh 1990s um, um when john major was prime minister um, and there was a lot of work done in and around government, uh, and it was concluded that um, that the costs of long-term care uh, would be so exorbitant if you were going to do it through insurance that it was just not feasible. And the problem was uh, that, of course, it'd be exorbitant because um, uh, uh, very few people would take it up on a voluntary basis. Mm. If you were very wealthy, 
and asset rich, why would you bother? Because by definition, you've got enough money. Yes. Um, and if you were at the other end of the scale, if you were poor, well, you couldn't afford it anyway. So th- this is somewhere we've been through before, uh, or the conservatives um, have, have been through before. Um, and I think what the government are trying to do um, is to do three things. One, it's to deal with the initial backlog um, as I say, as a result of the pandemic, although let's be honest, the NHS uh, was not keeping up with demand and things have, have been getting worse for mm-hmm. many years, particularly under this conservative government uh, with NHS waiting times and lists. Uh, and then secondly, um, they want to, for no doubt for electoral reasons, as well as moral and social reasons, um, they want to try and give people a, a degree of certainty and they mm-hmm. basically want people um, you know, to understand that 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 once they hit the £86,000 limit, uh, you know, that that provides certainty that they can plan for that, at least yes. they can understand it, and that this will then spark some kind of revolution. I think there are big problems here. The first thing is um, there is no guarantee um, that this higher tax rate will, in fact, deliver more money. Britain has long been hovering at the peak of what economists call the Laffer curve. And as a few commentators have pointed out in the national press in recent days, it could be that actually the increase in the tax is, for example, a tax on employees and a tax on jobs, that it slows down growth and it actually reduces the size of our national economic pie. And so we can have the unintended consequence. And the truth is, we don't know. Yes. Nobody knows um, because nobody quite knows where what I call the cultural peak of Laffer curve is at the moment. But it's possible. Secondly, it seems to me that the government's plans uh, for social care uh, uh, remain pretty sketchy. In fact, I don't really see where that there is a plan. The government talk about um, investing in health and social care and they talk about using innovative technology they talk about ai and all kinds of things but but where is the plan and the last thing is i really do not understand where um there is also a a concrete roadmap of how this money that will no doubt be welcomed by the nhs but 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 used quite rapidly where that money will be somehow become freed up in two or three years time from now um, uh, so that, that this money is spare um, for the social care side of, of the equation. Um, um, now, what I will say is um, that, uh, and this is just, you know, watching politicians over the years and the decades of left, right, up and down, it could be that the, the government have such a big majority, you know, they have a majority of 80, and the legislation for this bill uh, when it was entered the House of Commons, the first votes showed that the government, okay, they had a reduced majority, their majority was down to 71, but that uh, it could be that actually the, the, the Boris Johnson and, and, and number 10, and this is a highly political team at number 10 at the moment, that they're actually trying to set up a series of what advisors and politicians called killing grounds for the opposition. So, you know, the Tories are clearly putting their guns on traditional moderate Labour territory by yes. making this move. Labour have blinked and said they're not going to support it. So this is like irony in that now the Tories have become the party of slightly higher taxes and Labour 
uh, don't agree with the, the government approach, and I'm sure for many of them complex reasons. Mm. But could it be that the Conservatives are calculating that they will still win the next election with some kind of majority? You know, it might be down to 20 or 30, but they'll still win with the majority. And that therefore, in the mid-2020s, as the economy improves, um, they will then try and, you know, become the tax-cutting party. Now, I don't know, and, and I'm, you know, but what I do know is that politicians try and game these scenarios. Um, but my biggest takeaway is, at the moment, from what the Prime Minister and this government have said, a lot of this seems pretty sketchy to me. An yes. awful lot is going to rely on actual implementation. Yes. Well, let's go back over some of the things. I mean, the, the first one is, I'm sure you've never been in an amusement arcade in your life, but there, there are machines there where you put pennies in, and if you're very lucky, they push a whole load of other pennies and a few drop out the bottom. I mean, we've seen time and time again more money allocated to the NHS, but it doesn't seem to get down to the sharp end. And we've also seen here the NHS is hiring an army of, what's it, 42 new executives on salaries up to £270,000 each, where you can get a lot of nurses for that isn't the worry that the money goes in but it doesn't get used wisely we don't even know if any of it will actually end up getting used for care well the first thing is i don't mind um fun arcades at all and in fact uh, unbeknownst to you i tend to visit one on south hold oh <laughs> every year of my life where i invariably <laughs> put my two penny pieces um, in the slot and 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 just enjoy the process of of, of, of watching the two pee pieces go into oblivion. Yeah. Just like I used to with my working class grandma down in Portsmouth yeah. um, in the 1970s, do the same. But of course, inflation hit, and in those days, it was a penny, not two. Of course, so let me correct you on that now. Um, <laughs> but but to the to the to the serious matter, um, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, well, I, I disagree in that. You know, if, if these executives are phenomenally good and they're world class and they lead to demonstrably improved outcomes, well, maybe what the government is doing and mm. what part of it may be fair enough. Um, maybe though they're just more administrative, more bureaucrats getting in the way of uh, clinicians and health professionals, um, and that it's and and, and that it, you know, bureaucracy begats bureaucracy and. There is something called Parkinson's law, which is that complex systems often become ever more complex. Yes. Um, I'm going to disagree with you, though, that even if you look at those 40, um, 40 um, uh, senior executives or whatever they are uh, at, they, at this exorbitant level of 270,000 a year, I'm afraid the sad reality is um, if you were to really divide their salaries amongst nurses, given it's a service that employs something in order of a million mm. people and we're dealing with a population of nudging 70 million, no, proportionally, you're not going to get many extra people. Yeah. You know, that's a reality, Simon. And this really leads on to the nub of your point, which is, um, uh, do we have um, a health system in terms of incentives and structures um, and configuration and organization and leadership and management and all those things that is going to use this money to good effect the thing that really disturbs me and, and you know let me put my cards on the table my wife is a senior nurse um, she initially did not go to university she always wanted to be a nurse she joined mm. the NHS when she was 18 uh, she later got her degree and indeed a doctorate, but but you know she she has been a nurse 
um, throughout, and she has worked um, in the NHS for many years. She's worked in the private sector. She's worked in mental health. She's pretty much had a 360 rounded view of mm. UK health and social care. And I think the thing that worries us is that um, we haven't got the sort of system that drives productivity. Um, in fact, there are some people who suggest that for all the extra money that new labor and uh, have put into the to the nhs and that the conservatives are putting in that productivity continues to go down and i come back and it's sort of a, a dark night of the soul because health and social care really concerns me i am a part-time carer as many people know i was caring for my parents for many years and i care for my aged mother um, the thing that really worries me is something called Gammon's Law. It was invented by Dr. Max Gammon, who was a GP in central London, in Bermondsey. And Gammon's Law basically states that if you've got the wrong type of bureaucracy, the wrong type of incentives, then you are in effect putting more and more money in to a system that's rather like a black hole that will emit ever less productivity. And this is where I think the government have got to be very careful. I greatly admired um, uh, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair's approach, which was, yes, put more money into a healthcare system. I think that's vital, but also try and modernise and update. And I think Tony Blair's reflection and maybe Gordon Brown's reflection is that they didn't modernise enough. Um, there are you know, yes, the British people absolutely and categorically want the NHS. They absolutely want it to be funded by taxation and they want it to be free at the point of delivery. But beyond that, there are different ways of organising things. You can have hospitals that are effectively owned by the state. You could have not-for-profits. Um, you know, you could have more clinician-led institutions. Um, you could have more capital investment um, 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 from a range of sectors. You could have public sector bond issuances for people who do, who provide more and better service, but for less money. There are all kinds of ways of doing it. And I don't think in this country, our political class is good at really looking around the world and doing what has to be done in so many other organizations, in so many other sectors, which is from time to time have a bit of a strategic refresh. And my greatest fear is that this money will indeed be like one of those um, uh, shove hapney machines yes, yes. that we enjoy in our, in our case. Yeah, but yes. I mean, the proportion of money that, of GDP that is spent on health and care in this country has sort of soared um, over the last generation or so. And I would like to ask about what the political implications might be for the Conservatives breaking manifesto promises. But I know you want to talk about other things, Tim. So let's just pause for breath and we will change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, let's move to a, a, a different topic. What are we talking about next? So um, there, are, there are intriguing stories at the moment um, in the national press. One really good piece recently, um, a superb article, a long read 
um, uh, about um, some wacky American uh, libertarians and uh, cryptocurrency boffins um, who had a dream of um, of, of seasteading uh, by buying a cruise ship. Um, and seasteading is basically, it's, it's a phrase that's been around for some years. It's the idea that you can go out into international waters and maybe you could build up, um, you know, a hotel under the ocean mm. or, or use a submarine or an ocean line or whatever it is, but find some sort of platform where a community can exist and um, it can somehow be beyond taxes. And if you want to discover or discuss you know, life extension or look at cryonics or whatever you can do it. And um, and if you want to trade gold and, and cryptocurrencies, you can do that. So it's a kind of Californian libertarian dream. And there's been one example of this where some associates of the, um, of the billionaire Peter Thiel, who's behind um, PayPal, um, went on a venture and they, they bought an old P&O cruise ship and um and they then ultimately i think registered this vessel with panama in agreement with the panamanian government um um and and they wanted to attract you know the world's rich to create this sort of libertarian hmm. community rather reminiscent i have to say of many of the utopian uh, communities um that we saw in you know sort of experiments from particularly the 19th century socialist and Christian socialist. Yes, yes. Things like New Lanarkshire, there were all kinds of anarcho-socialist experiments in the United States. We, of course, had um, the Rochdale pioneers and the cooperative movement. We had the the, the, um, the Quaker movements, you know, um, all these things. So these model libertarians are, are, are doing this. But, of course, the, the funny thing was, once they bought their ex-P&O ship, um, they um they really didn't understand that there are you know, there are an awful lot of regulations uh, surrounding how you run um, a cruise ship, and they clearly didn't have the experience, the knowledge to know any of this, and so the whole the whole um, venture turned out to be far less utopian than they thought. But you contrast that, you contrast that sort of utopianism, that twenty first century utopian vision of of this sort of floating community with the blight and the perils and the problems and the heartache that we see um and the struggles that we see in the in, in in the english channel at the moment with people uh from many different parts of the world getting to france then getting to calais and trying to get to britain and of course there was a day recently where more than 700 uh migrants tried to cross the channel uh, and, and get to britain um, these people come from various parts of Africa. They come from the Middle East. There are also uh, Afghans there. Um, and of course, this is a problem um, that is particularly at the door, not only the British government, but particularly the Home Secretary. And I, and I mention these two things because they are sort of polar opposites. You know, you've got the, the, the dreamy people who are trying to get onto the seas to live a libertarian dream. And then there are others uh, who are trying to cross a narrow stretch of water um, to 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 get to Britain, no doubt to build a better lives for themselves, to engage education, to engage work, and 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 to and to, and and to have a better life. And I think what those two stories tell me, or they remind me, is that we live, Simon, on a planet where two thirds of our planet is water its oceans, its seas. And we said, I think, recently to each other that 
we talk a lot about national policy in Britain. We've just been talking about the NHS. But we often ignore local government because local government does an awful lot in this country, but very few think tanks do work, really, that relates to, 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 to the nitty-gritty of local government. And we all do very little, I think, thinking often about the seas and the oceans. One of the few academics who has done a lot of work on this is a man in the United States called Walter Block. Um, he is from the classical liberal tradition in economics, but he wrote a really interesting draft paper when I saw it last called The Privatization of Water, where it talks about the environmental benefits of developing various forms of innovative property rights um, in, in, in various waterways around the world, not just in rivers and not just in canals, but also in the oceans of the world. And he talks, for example, about how would you um, seastead, how would you actually do that? How would you, uh, uh, you know, allow people to cross across different parts of the, of, of, of the seas? You know, what are the implications for this in terms of those people who want, quite rightly and understandably, to move around mm. to seek a better life? And I think this is a fascinating area. And it reminds me that, 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 that when we think about the oceans in terms of our approaches and thinking about migrants, thinking about various forms of utopians, utopias, utopias often turn out to be far less utopian than you hope, but they're nevertheless often signposts to, to where the future might go. There were lots of good things in terms of industrial practices and um, education and housing arrangements that came from the 19th century um, um, socialist tradition. So I'm really interested in, in, in where all these debates are going. But my great plea is that we need to do a lot more thinking, I think, about uh, oceans. And it's not just about uh, enabling people to cross them um, and, uh, and, and issues of seasteading uh, and issues of environmental protection, uh, but it's just about this two thirds of the planet that we inhabit. And just very briefly, because the, obviously the, the migrant arrivals is pretty heartrending. But yes. why, given that many people here actually move away into often into Europe, going the other way, what is the big attraction about Britain compared to many of the places that these migrants have travelled through? What is the big pull? I think that one of the big pulls is language. I think that many of these people have English as a second language. Um, I, I think that's probably the biggest pull. Um, I think secondly, uh, Britain is a liberal country. It has a liberal economy. Uh, we don't have um, a strong identity card regime uh, as they have um, in, the, in France, for example. Uh, we are a country that has um, that common law approach that we share with countries like the United States. I mean, in a way, the United States dream was very much built on, on some of the, um, I think, subtexts of, 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 of English life and mm. practice. Um, um, and I think many of them find um, an English-speaking uh, liberal, economically liberal, uh, country um, very very attractive and and you know they know that generally we do diversity well mm. that I think a lot of scope for improvement but we do do 
diversity, I would argue better than many other people do it. Um, and, um, and, and I think that many of the things that we regard as a beacon of ourselves, all that inclusivity, diversity, you know, um, uh, our language, all the rest of it, are things that they adore. And, and that's mm. why they want to come here. Okay. Uh, Tim, uh, I haven't left you much time, but we're going to change now to our last topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, well, I know what our last topic is because you sent me a reading list. And I have to say, I, I had to sort of do quite a bit of work to understand what the last topic was because it's called the replication crisis but i'm afraid i didn't really know there was a replication crisis and i wasn't even sure what replication was so do fill me in please well of course uh, the replication crisis really relates to um uh, uh the way we study and research um, in the various scientific fields um because of course the 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 great argument for science is that science um, uh, uh, is about experimentation. It's about doing tests. Um, and it's about uh, discovering um, patterns, trends, whatever, uh, concepts, frameworks, theories that enable you to surface and better understand the world. And in so doing, um, uh, uh, really predict certain outcomes from certain inputs so if you know if i drop my watch it will fall and we know that from the law of gravity the thing that really i think ultimately demarcates science from um for example from religion or or superstition or other belief systems is that ultimately um science examines that which uh, sir karl popper said is falsifiable you know you're testing something that is false falsifiable i could argue as i stare at a window here that there are pixies in the garden the problem is you can't test that and you can't say um that it's true or false but if i drop my watch um um you know and i'm wrong well it is falsifiable and that predictive element of science um you know uncovering laws that predict the way things work, be it in biology or chemistry or economics or the social sciences, that is an important part. And it's an important part, not just of science, but also, of course, of the academy and of universities. And um, in recent years, there has been a debate. Um, it's a fairly esoteric debate, but it is, I think, an important one for wider society that for all the you know, vast amount of output from our, you know, university and commercial and research communities um, um, there is a problem because when um, a lot of uh, scientific research is presented uh, reaching certain conclusions well if it's science you would hope to be able to replicate to repeat the experiment or, or to test and there's a replication crisis because um, it turns out that an awful lot of the studies that are published or produced um, are not as replicable as, as we would like. Um, mm -hmm. For example, uh, there was a, an attempt in 2015 to reproduce 100 psychology studies, um, but the researchers were only able to produce 39 of them. 
um, uh, in there was a big international effort more recently in 2018 to to reproduce some prominent studies. Um, but out of 28, they could only get the same results um, on 14 occasions. Um, and there's been a lot about this, not just in various academic journals, but also in, in really important, you know, uh, publications, well-known publications, journals like Nature and Science. And, and you know, Nature and Science found that, of, um, um, that out of an awful lot of the, the studies they've looked at, there is a very, very sizable proportion of, of seemingly or previously thought of very mm. eminent research that is um, not, you, you cannot repeat. And so... There's, you know, there are lots of um, theories as to why this is the case. There are people who believe that the peer review process is itself gained by certain individuals. That you know, once you capture it, an editorial board and you go through peer review. Yes, are you part of an ecosystem that can have uh, all kinds of biases? Um, can there be nepotism? Um, some people have suggested that this is to do with funding and the politicization of funding. Um, you know, uh, or commercial incentive, mm. the, the, the research will follow the funder, whether it's the government or a big corporate donor or something. Um, but this has become quite a problem. And it is not just in, you know, in the social sciences. This is not just in sociology or psychology. Um, there is a, there's a lot of uh, research that, 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 that has not been been able to be you know, replicated in areas such as biology, um, and uh, it, you know, it's, it's not a crisis, but it's 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 creating a lot of thought onto how can we improve um, the way we do science and how can we improve rec replicability for the twenty first century. So, you know, looking yeah. at statistical mm -hmm. techniques, um, about how you know about new funding agencies. Um, um you know um but basically there's a movement to thinking in terms of how we upgrade our science to improve it um i was fairly sure there was a quote from the great physicist richard feynman this, this one will do i'm not sure it's the one i was looking for it doesn't matter how beautiful your theory is it doesn't matter how smart you are if it doesn't agree with experiment it's wrong and so presumably we're getting all these papers that are actually producing science that isn't actually correct. If it can't be replicated, then there's clearly something wrong, whether by design or mistake, or, you know, or just simply trying to hoax others, it isn't right. And it, surely it's quite important that the science be correct. Uh, isn't there actually a danger from spurious science that people then believe, that don't understand it hasn't been replicated, will actually believe what is being hypothesized? Exactly. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. This is why it is concerning. Um, um, uh, so, you know, the, I mean, I think there's going to be, I think the consequence of this will be a general drift towards much greater transparency. Mm. I think there'll probably be more openness guidelines. Um, I think that, um, that there will be a review of the way a lot of research is funded over time. Um, I think that... Um, there will have to be a review of the way that journals um, do their peer review. Um, there will be, for example, I think pre-registering of research and that there will be a move in future where very highly rated, uh, highly regarded and highly rated journals um, actually test or, or get others to, to, to replicate upfront 
uh, a lot of the research to prove the replicability. Um, um, you know, so so this is very very important. But I think that I think science is hugely important. I think that science in the public realm in our civil society is hugely important. And I think that having good and reliable source at science is is vital. I mean, look, uh, this is also about honesty. And I I well remember when I was doing my PhD nearly thirty years ago now. Um, I remember I had a hypothesis. I am a social scientist. Mm. And my hypothesis was that the group of people I was looking at had a particular class background. But actually, when I did the research, my hypothesis was wrong. Mm. And in fact, the answer to what I was investigating was somewhere completely, it was, it was not that I was dealing with people of a particular class background. It was, dealing, it was that I was dealing with a group of people with a much higher degree of secularity and a much lower degree of religiosity than than the wider cohorts. Um, although I was wrong, um, my research was uh, and my reputation was greatly enhanced by being honest and being upfront and you know re and and you know sort of uh, taking my research in in the different direction that it needed to go in for my PhD. And I think that um, that kind of honesty and 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 and, and openness is vital. I yes. think an awful lot of people in academia, there's huge pressure on academics now to research, to publish, to get results. And, and sometimes when people are under duress and huge pressure, they don't always have the time or the incentives to do mm. things as perhaps they would wish. Yes. And so I think there's an awful lot in this it is of huge importance to the way we locate science, think about it, and do it, not only in the academy, but our broader society. And about the same time you were trying to stand up your hypothesis was 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 when we got that extraordinary news that cold fusion had been achieved, which turned out to be wrong because it couldn't be replicated. That's the most famous example I could think of, of you know, uh, me, a layman, knowing yeah. that, that you know, we believe we've achieved something with science, but you can't actually reproduce it. And that's, well, that's 30, 32 years ago, I think. Late 80s. Look, I, I am an optimist, Simon, and I do think that although this has been cast as a crisis, um, uh, I, I disagree with that. I think I would not call it a replication crisis. I would call it a replication opportunity. Um, and I think that it's a way that we can improve our science for this century. You know, you only have to go back to the Enlightenment and, 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 and the, you know, 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, and look at what we've achieved today to see the leaps and bounds we've made. This is another great opportunity for a great leap forward. I wish somehow you could you could sell on your op optimism, Tim. I'd like to have a little dose of it from time to time. Well, Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> That's uh, Tim Evans I've been talking to, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back uh, with more in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.